Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute of Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and our good friends at WKER Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute. I'm joined as always by MSU economist, Dr. Charlie Ballard, and our IPSER Director, Dr. Matt Grossman. Later on, we'll be joined by Dr. John Guderis, an MSU economist who, with Dr. Ballard, recently released a study on the racial wage gap. But before we get to that topic, uh, let's turn to some of the days and weeks more recent uh, events. There's been a lot going on, Charlie and Matt. Um, the health situation with COVID-19, uh, George Floyd, politics, um, where, do, where should we start here? Matt, what, maybe let's start with you and, and talk a bit about the politics of Michigan as a uh, swing state and, and maybe uh, racial attitudes in, in general. Well, Michigan uh, has been moving toward the Democratic side uh, lately when it comes to the presidential uh, election uh, and the Senate race. Uh, it seems to have moved a little bit more to the Democratic side uh, than uh, our uh, neighbors in Wisconsin or, or Pennsylvania, um, which were kind of seen as a, as a set at one point. Um, and now Michigan looks the least winnable of those three by Donald Trump, uh, though, of course, uh, the election is not being held today. Uh, and so uh, lots could change, but things are certainly trending in a Democratic direction and more so in Michigan. The racial attitudes uh, changes uh, over the last few weeks have been uh, enormous by historical standards. These are uh, normally very difficult attitudes to change. Um, and yet we saw uh, extremely strong reactions uh, to the, the protests, um, even uh, among uh, white voters and even on very explicit uh, policies uh, related uh, to the, the protests. Um, that doesn't mean that we're, we're going to see a full revolution. The police are still very popular uh, uh, throughout the U.S., even as Black Lives Matter uh, is becoming more popular. Um, but uh, it is a lot of change in a, in a small amount of time. Now, is Black Lives Matter, you mentioned Black Lives Matter, is Black Lives Matter itself becoming more accepted amongst uh, the, the, those that have been uh, polled? Uh, it is. Um, you know, its approval rating was underwater uh, in the, during the last protests um, in 2014 and 2015. Um, and now it's, you know, 30 points above uh, or so. Um, part of that is the change in the tenor of the media coverage, which has been uh, fairly dramatic. Uh, the last major spike in coverage of Black Lives Matter was actually around the uh, around the shooting of police officers in Dallas right before the Republican convention in 2016. And so you can imagine that that news coverage was very negative in attempting to, or at least uh, opening with the possibility of a connection between the movement and the shooting of police officers. So uh, what we've seen over the last few weeks is a dramatic turnaround uh, from that coverage. And it seems to have uh, been reflected in public opinion. Now you mentioned Michigan's uh, position as a swing state and the, and the election still being, uh, what is this? I'm trying to remember my months, June. So we've still got uh, about five months to go before, four or five months to go before the actual election. And, you know, the, the, the polls that came out in the last week showed, you know, uh, 
Joe Biden with anywhere from a, a 12 to 16 point. Uh, and then I saw a story the other day about the only pollster who got Michigan right, apparently, during the 2016 election, says it's close to a dead heat. So uh, what are we to believe? What, what, what do you see as the disparity between some of these polls? One of the comments I mentioned is that uh, the number of non-college educated uh, citizens uh, has been um, uh, not as well polled as college educated. Uh, what, what's, what's with these disparities? Should, should we trust polls uh, at any point in time during this election? Well, when the trends are moving overwhelmingly in, in one direction, it's sort of easy to see no matter what the methods of the polls and no matter which poll uh, you look at, and that's uh, true right now. Um, I, there are some differences. Um, the, the polls that are telephone polls uh, tend to allow you to show more difference over time, and that's what happened with the New York Times poll this morning. Uh, where it showed a, a 14 point uh, gap uh, compared to the online polls, they tend to uh, actually be a little bit too constrained because they're always trying to keep in the exact same number of Republicans and Democrats um, because they can't rely on a random sample. Um, and so you see less change, but you're also seeing the same trends uh, in those numbers. So I don't think this is about the, the methods. Um, now the national versus Michigan picture, it's not that we're moving overwhelmingly to the uh, left, it's that the uh, national, we're, we're more closely tied with the national picture than our Wisconsin and uh, Pennsylvania, where you still, where they still seem to be at least a few points to the right of the national picture. So if we had to guess today, we would say President Trump will still have a slight advantage in the electoral college where he could lose the national popular vote by two or three percentage points. Um, but if he were to do that, um, it probably wouldn't be Michigan that would be the pivotal state if, if we're speaking right now based on current polling. Right. I saw uh, one article talk about Arizona as a pivotal state, which is uh, uh, kind of interesting. Have, have you seen that as well? Well, the Arizona situation is based on a very different kind of turnout model. That's the one state that really is affected by turnout. If we have a massive turnout, uh, we have a much more Hispanic electorate than um, Arizona, you know, could move up the, the chart. Um, but no, right now, actually, the, 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 we're talking about small differences from 2016. Um, the biggest one, I would say, in terms of an, its impact on the election is actually that uh, Biden is doing better in Florida early on um, because he's doing overall better among older voters. Uh, and that also may be helping him in Michigan. Now, uh, Charlie, let's let's turn to one of the largest issues always during election season, that being the economy. Um, some states uh, are opening up. Some have opened up, many believe, too early and are seeing a spike in cases. Michigan keeps plodding along, I guess you could say, in terms of opening up. Uh, the governor yesterday said that uh, um, she is not going to uh, move to the last phase or phase five, I guess it is, uh, before July 4th right now because of a bit of an uptick in, in our cases as well. How do you see the economy here in Michigan or across the country performing at this point in time? Well, um, April 2020 was the biggest uh, percentage shrinkage in the American economy ever in any month. Uh, <clears throat> we've made a little bit of uh, growth back in May, um, but uh, it, it is still true um, 
that uh, the, the number of people who are out of work is up by ballpark of 20 million from, from what we had in February. Um, and uh, even though there was some growth in May, I think most analysts expected that the growth will continue, but that it will be slow. In other words, that um, uh, it's going to be many months and perhaps a couple of years before we get back to the, uh, the size of the economy that we had in 2019. And uh, Michigan, <clears throat> excuse me, Michigan has, uh, uh, our unemployment rate went up more than the uh, average um, because of a, a, a host of reasons, including uh, a lot of manufacturing installations were closed. Now, some of those are opening back up. I think uh, we saw a drop in the unemployment rate between April and May in uh, Michigan. Uh, we're likely to see that continue in June, but still we are, uh, this is an unprecedentedly uh, sharp, sudden, deep drop uh, of the economy. Uh, one thing um, that we've noticed is the, the job losses um, were different from what we have seen in many recent uh, recessions. The, a lot of the recessions that we've seen in our lifetime, some people call them man sessions because they disproportionately hurt uh, men working in manufacturing and in construction. This has been a much more feminized job loss. And um, the, uh, uh, also women, uh, women, uh, Hispanics, blacks, and a lot of the, <clears throat> sorry about my voice, a lot of the uh, uh, job losses have been very disproportionately among low wage workers. When you put that together with the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on health outcomes for um, African-Americans, um, this whole set of events has shined a lot of light on disparity. Well, you know, well known that since about 1980 or so, uh, income inequality and earnings inequality in the United States has, has become dramatically larger. And um, we're seeing that being exacerbated by uh, the twin uh, effects of COVID-19 and, and the economic downturn. Well, that's actually a uh, excellent segue into discussing the research that you and your fellow economist, MSU economist, Dr. John Guderis have done. Uh, Dr. Guderis, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. And uh, so with that, uh, why don't we uh, move into uh, a reveal of uh, some of the aspects of the research that the two of you have done on uh, what uh, may be commonly called as the racial wage gap. Okay, thanks, Arnold. Um, so the research that Charlie and I uh, are reporting on began last year before uh, the recent developments that Charlie was just touch, touching on uh, have, have put a much brighter spotlight on the disparities and injustices long faced by African-Americans. Uh, I think we've all seen in the last few weeks a lot of reports in major news outlets uh, on these disparities and how they've been magnified by the COVID-19 pandemic and its effects on the economy. Now, as you know, Charlie's done a lot of work over the years on the Michigan economy, how it compares with the rest of the US, and also on the evolution of economic inequality across the states. What surprised me and intrigued me when he invited me into this project 
was what he was finding on the difference in the trajectory of economic outcomes for black workers across regions over a long sweep of time. In particular, since around 1980, black workers, both men and women, have lost a lot of ground uh, relative to whites outside of the South. Uh, it surprised me that over this four decade period, black workers made progress or at least held their own in the South while losing considerable ground to whites in the rest of the country. And although uh, individual states are not the main focus in the paper that we'll be submitting for publication, it is striking that African-Americans have lost the most ground in Michigan. So I'm gonna describe what we've done and, and summarize what we found. Uh, other research has shown that starting from a very low base, black workers actually made a lot of progress relative to whites in the middle of the 20th century, from about 1940 to about 1980. And that was especially true of women. Uh, around 1980, African-American men had been making progress, but they were still on average making only about 70% as much as white men were. And this is where our research picks up. We focus on annual earnings for full-time year-round workers age 25 to 54, what's often called prime age workers. Um, I should say that this comparison of full-time workers is going to be more favorable to black men than it would be if we also took into account their higher levels of unemployment and their, their, their higher likelihood of being out of the labor force. Nonetheless, the progress that was happening before 1980 really ended at that point. Nationally, black male workers essentially gained no more ground on whites in the ensuing 40 years, and black female workers lost ground. Now, other researchers have found similar things. What's gotten less attention, and what we focus on, is that trends have been dramatically different in different parts of the country. Uh, we found that black men did continue to make progress in the South, which we define as the states that were part of the Confederacy. And black women held their own relative to whites in the South, but both black men and black women lost ground to whites in the rest of the country. Uh, I'll give a few numbers. So the median or the typical black woman actually made as much as the typical white woman outside the South uh, back around 1980. However, four decades later, she was down to about 82% as much, a very large drop. Relative to a white man's earnings, the typical black man used to do much worse in the South than elsewhere. There's about a 15 percentage point difference between the South and the rest of the country. Now that difference is only a couple of percentage points. And coming back to the Michigan uh, aspect of this, of all the states with significant African-American populations, black workers have lost the most ground to whites here in Michigan. That's true for both men and women. Uh, a really striking comparison that Charlie uncovered is if you compare Alabama and Michigan. 40 years ago, the typical black worker, male or female, earned only about half as much in Alabama as in Michigan. Uh, and that helps explain why in the, in the decades before that, many blacks had been migrating from the South to places like Detroit. 
But today, those gaps are almost entirely closed. So the black workers make almost as much uh, in Alabama today as they do in Michigan. Now, most people know that these last few decades have not been great for the American middle class in general. Uh, but for the country as a whole, the typical full-time worker, black or white, has seen some increase in real earnings that is adjusted for inflation. Uh, earnings growth has been better for whites than it has been for black workers, but earnings did rise for both. Again, though, not so in Michigan. In Michigan, black men have seen a significant decline in their earnings in real terms, and black women have essentially been treading water for the last 40 years. And now the median man still makes more than the median woman. Now, much of our research is about trying to understand why the earning trends for blacks have been better in the South uh, than they've been elsewhere. Simply put, the way we do this is we look at the characteristics that we would expect to influence earnings for either black or white workers, such as years of education, experience, and occupation, and then we statistically estimate how these things affect earnings. We then ask how much of the difference in earnings of a typical African-American can be explained by differences in these characteristics. Uh, as Charlie mentioned before, uh, I think we, we know pretty well that the distribution of income in the U.S. has become uh, much more unequal over time. And part of that increase in inequality arises from increasing differences in earnings between those with a lot of education and those with little and from widening differences in rates of pay across occupations. The increasing return to education has hurt black workers relatively because on average, they still have less education than whites and they seem to have stopped closing that education gap. Widening occupational pay disparities also disadvantage black workers who are more likely to be working in low wage occupations. Now, while it's uh, a little bit complicated to go into detail about this here, our approach can explain a deal of why black workers have struggled to make progress in earnings generally, but have done relatively better in the South. So for example, uh, black men started out far behind uh, in education in the South, and they were able to close a good part of that gap, but a gap still remains so a rising return to education disadvantaged uh, black men even in the South. Still, uh, much of the black-white gaps in earnings that we see remain unexplained by the racial differences and characteristics that we control for in our analysis. And only in the case of Southern black men is there an indication that this unexplained portion of the earnings gap is getting smaller over time. While we hesitate to draw conclusions from our research about relative changes in economic discrimination across regions, these large unexplained earnings gaps are just another piece of evidence that significant economic discrimination exists. And uh, the other thing we can say from our research is we don't find evidence that discrimination is more of an issue these days in the South than it is in the North. Uh, I think at this point, I'll, I'll, I'll give Charlie a chance to, to chime in if he, if he wants to. Yes, thanks, John. Um, uh, certainly, 
anybody who is familiar with American history would, would say that 50, 60 years ago, uh, discrimination against uh, African-Americans was much more severe in the South than in the rest of the country, but uh, it's not clear that that is true uh, now. Um, I want to comment on a couple of uh, other possible influences on, uh, on this. Uh, uh, residential racial, racial segregation is obviously something that, is, uh, that might have an effect on this. Uh, but in our in our research, just due to the the data and some other things, we don't have an explicit measure of that. But other researchers uh, have uh, neighborhood measures and and measures of uh, residential segregation, and it, it's interesting to note that um, the the regions with where metropolitan areas are the most segregated tend to be the regions where uh, African-Americans have fared least well. Uh, in particular, the part of the country where uh, these relative losses for black workers have been the biggest is the Great Lakes region. Um, Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, which is a, a, a region that the census um, considers together, five state, those five states. That's the region where there's been the greatest losses for blacks. And then uh, the greatest losses for black workers in any state have been in Michigan. Well, um, we have measures, there are indexes of the degree of residential segregation. And basically it boils down to what fraction of the population would have to move in order for it, a metropolitan area not to be segregated by race in order for it to be essentially random where, where people are, are located. Um, Detroit used to be the most heavily segregated in the entire country. Uh, now it's, uh, according to the recent measures, it's the fourth most highest. But of, the, of 234 metropolitan areas um, uh, that have been measured, of the most segregated 29 of those, 15 are in the Great Lakes region and six are in Michigan. Um, we, uh, we in Michigan, we don't have Confederate statues and we don't have, we've never had Jim Crow laws, but we have in many ways a more segregated society than, uh, than in the South. And uh, I, I, even though we can't uh, definitively determine the effect of that, I think it's got to be a part of the picture. Uh, my sense is that as long as Michigan remains uh, deeply segregated by race, um, it will be difficult for African Americans to make the kind of progress that uh, that I would like to see. Well, it certainly is um, shocking and disturbing uh, to hear about your findings that Michigan uh, is at the top of states with metros that are segregated is at the top of states um, where African-American men have seen their earnings um, not rise as, as fast as, as, as white men. Uh, I mean, this is the it state- actually, It actually fell. It actually fell, yeah. yeah. I, I, you yeah. know, I mean, this is the state that uh, gave birth to the middle class. Yes. Um, yeah. And of course, these losses, we talk more about the median work, black worker versus the median white worker. That's, a, you know, that's the middle of the distribution. But at the bottom, if you compare the, the 25th percentile black 
male worker in Michigan with the 25th percentile white male, that the, the, the 25th percentile black male, their real earnings adjusted for inflation dropped by almost a third in the period that we've studied. Uh, stunning, stunning losses. Um, we don't find a huge effect for the decrease in manufacturing. Uh, and I won't get down into the weeds of our methodology, but there are other studies that suggest that the uh, decline in manufacturing may well uh, have contributed to this as well. In our data, the decline in manufacturing hurt black workers, but it also hurt white workers. Um, but it's possible that um, if, you, if you do the analysis in a different way that you would find uh, an effect that would be disproportionate on, on African-Americans. And what about the role of education? Education is at the education and occupation are the two things that come through most dramatically in, in our data. And, and there's two effects of education. One is, as John said, uh, black workers have never caught up with white workers in terms of a number of years of schooling. The, the gap is much lower than it was 50, 100 years ago, but it's, there still remains a gap. And as the payoff to additional education has increased, then any, any gap uh, costs the black workers more. In other words, the penalty that they suffer from having slightly less education is bigger because the payoff to education is higher. And the other part of it is we, we have estimates of holding co constant other things how much extra money do you get from having one additional year of education? And that, that number has gone up both for black and white, but it has gone up less for black workers than for white workers. And in fact, in the 21st century, we've seen actually some decline in that payoff to education for African-American workers. Um. What are uh, some of the policy recommendations? Do you have pol any policy recommendations included in the report? Well, we, we talk about things that, that might make a difference. Certainly, uh, uh, we need to continue to try to enforce our discrimination laws. Uh, uh, anything that can improve the educational outcomes for African-American workers, uh, for African-American children who then grow up to be workers, um, will make a difference. I'm, uh, uh, we don't talk about this a whole lot in the paper, but I advocate for a longer K through 12 school year, uh, more early childhood education. Uh, these are things that would help white children too, but I believe that because of the deficits that black children face, they would probably help black children even more. Um, I'd like to see a less segregated society. Um, uh, John, what, are there other uh, oh, I, I mean, I agree with things that Charlie, you... Charlie's saying. I, I would say, though, our, our research, uh, this, the paper that we put together now, uh, is more about, you know, just trying to understand the data and why these differences exist. There's not a whole lot of uh, focus in the paper on uh, the policy responses, but uh, the kinds of things that Charlie was talking about, uh, centering on... Uh, Differences in education, for example, that's that that would be one of the most important areas. Uh, and I agree with those recommendations. And even if you hold constant the education level, black workers are disproportionately in low paid occupations. 
And um, whether that's due to explicit uh, current labor market discrimination or whether it's due to uh, just the, the longer term legacy of a, of a history of discrimination over centuries, um, it's, uh, that's, I think, uh, an unfortunate thing. And I think we need to continue our efforts to make sure that, hey, if a black worker has a bachelor's degree, that person should be able to get a job similar to what a white person with a bachelor's degree would have. And, and if a black worker has a high school diploma, they should be able to get a similar job to a white worker with a high school diploma. And I would just add to that. I think that's uh, in our in our research. That's one of the areas where the South seems to have done a little better over time than the than the than the rest of the country has. That is in terms of the uh, occupational distribution, starting to look a little bit more equal uh, across uh, across the races. Matt, any questions or, or thoughts for uh, Charlie or John? Well, just to bring it back to where we started, we are seeing um, some real changes in not just attitudes about the protesters, but attitudes about uh, discrimination. There is increasing recognition of uh, high levels of discrimination against African-Americans um, and uh, increasing willingness uh, to place an in, uh, to place blame for, for that on uh, for, for blame for economic differences on uh, discrimination. But where we haven't seen much movement is the sort of actual action, willingness to live in a neighborhood that has a higher non-white population, willingness to attend a school district that has a, a high non-white population. So uh, I guess I, I wonder if we are going to move from the recognition uh, to uh, any, any willingness to change behavior. And any movement from recognition to actual behavioral changes is not going to be measured in weeks. It's going to be measured in years or decades because we've got a very long history here. Well, Charlie and John, I want to thank you both very much uh, for your work in this area. Um, very timely, of course, uh, given the discussions, the policy discussions uh, going on right now. Um, and we look forward to uh, hearing more about your report and more about your work moving forward. Uh, before we close, any last thoughts uh, from uh, you, Matt, or, or, or Charlie? Go green. Go white. <laughs> Go summer. <laughs> Go summer. It's been a beautiful June. So yeah. far, so good. Uh, well, I want to thank you both, as always. Um, always a pleasure to be with you and, and, and chat. Um, my thanks again to uh, Russ White and the staff at WKR for their support of this program. That's all the time we have on this edition of State of the State. Join us again next month.